0: So, good evening. Um, Today I would like to talk about perception. And I would like to begin tonight by reading a story to you. It's a dependent story called The Miraculous Tooth. So, once there was an old woman whose son was a trader... Often he joined a caravan and went to distant India on business. One day his mother said, But Gaya in India is the place where the perfect Buddha was enlightened. Please bring me a blessed relic from there, a talisman I can use as a focus for my devotions. I shall place it on my altar, pray and bow to it, as a material representation of the Buddha's blessed body. Many times she repeated her request. However, each time her son returned from a business trip to the Holy Land of India, he realized that he had forgotten his mother's fervent plea. For several years, he failed to bring her what she had asked for, one day as he was getting ready to depart yet again for India his mother said to him Son remember my words on your journey this time if you do not bring me a relic from bodgaya to use for my prostrations i shall kill myself in front of you he was shocked by her unexpected intensity <laughs> Vowing to fulfill his mother's wish, he left. At last, after many months, his business affairs were completed and he approached his homeland. Again, he had forgotten to acquire for his dear old mother a genuine relic of the Buddha. It was only when he approached his mother's house that he remembered her words. What am I going to do? He thought. I haven't brought anything for mother's altar. If I arrive at home empty-handed, she'll kill herself. <laughs> Looking around in dismay, he spotted the desiccated skull of a dog lying by the roadside. Hastily, he tore a tooth from the jaw and proceeded to wrap it up. Reaching home, he reverently presented this package to his mother, "'Here is one of the Buddha's teeth,' he said. (laughs) "'I acquired it in Lord Buddha's native land, India,' he said. "'You can use it as a support for your prayers.' The old woman believed him. She had faith in the tooth, believing it to be from Lord Buddha himself." She constantly offered prostrations and prayers to it as to the veritable embodiment of all the Buddhas. Through such practices she found the unshakable peace of mind she had long sought. Miraculously, from the dog's tooth emanated countless tiny translucent pearls and swirls of rainbow light. All the neighbors were delighted to find such blessings free for the taking at the old woman's altar, where they gathered daily. When the old woman finally met death, a canopy of rainbow light surrounded her and everyone recognized in the beatific smile on her wizened face that she had attained spiritual exaltation. Although a dog's tooth in itself contains few blessings, the power of the woman's unswerving face ensured that the blessings of the Buddha would enter that tooth. Thus, a mere dog's tooth became no different from an authentic relic of the Buddha, and many were uplifted. So, this story is about the power of faith, And at the same time, it is also very much about the power of perception. And perception is the topic that I would like to talk about tonight. Because it is perception or sanya in Pali that creates the world that we inhabit and react to. If we see a dog's tooth as one of the Buddha's teeth, This will have huge implications on how we experience it and our mind and heart will react accordingly, at least if we are Buddhist practitioners with an affinity to devotional practices around relics, I should say. (laughs) Now, working with our perceptions is fundamental to our whole Dharma practice and it is an area that I have been really interested in the past year or so. And I want to acknowledge that in this exploration, I have been very inspired by Robert Bia. He's a Dharma teacher from England. So in the practice of vipassana, as you know, we are over and over reconnecting with the immediate sensory experience as it is being seen, heard, touched, smelled, etc., and through this, gradually, we come to learn to distinguish between concepts, ideas, interpretations on the one side and the more immediate felt experience below the concept. What we label as, let's say, sadness on one level, on a relative level, is when we drop into the, the felt experience perhaps a sense of heaviness or contractedness, that we start to notice. And getting in touch with this felt-lived experience as it is unfolding moment by moment is very liberating because it cuts or undermines the mind's tendency to get lost in proliferation. Connecting to the immediately felt and sensed experience moment by moment the mind gradually produces less mental fabrication and touches into the freshness and aliveness of this moment's experience. So the practice of mindfulness enables us to deconstruct many of the constructions that shape and limit our experience. It is a practice of deconstruction. Rather than viewing the world through our layers of concepts and evaluations, fears and hopes, we start to sense the fleeting, ungraspable nature of each moment's experience and learn to relax into it. We learn how to see through our mental fabrications and not to believe everything they present us because we realize that they are nothing more than fabrications. And this is huge. This insight really brings much relief and inner freedom with respect to our experience. However, sometimes from this kind of practice, there can come a certain misunderstanding that brings a somewhat dismissive attitude towards concepts and fabrications in general. At least for myself, I can say that I had a period where I misunderstood the practice to be just about getting rid of concepts altogether and about not thinking. And such an interpretation is sometimes encouraged when we hear spiritual teachings that tell us that we should stop thinking. I remember a Zen monk telling another practitioner that she simply was thinking too much and In a way, he was right. She was indeed thinking and speculating a lot and creating a lot of fear through her thinking. And yet, does that mean that we ought to get rid of concepts? That we have to get rid of thinking? Is practice really about stopping this thinking mind? The thing is, as you may have noticed... Even if we try hard, we will not be able to live our life without concepts, without ways of framing our experience and making sense of it. It seems to me that living completely without concepts is impossible. Even our practice here is not free from concepts, not at all. Even if we practice to somewhat disengage from conceptual thinking during our meditation, this does not mean that we do not have any concepts framing our practice. The practice of sitting here, trying to be mindful, is based on a whole framework of Dharma teachings. We wouldn't be doing it if it weren't for some notions of awakening, of mind cultivation that brought us here. And I wouldn't be here sitting and talking to you using language, using concepts. Or just as a nice example that was brought up by one of you in an interview, what are the thoughts and ideas that we may have around the practice of bowing? How am I framing this act? What meaning does it have for me? It's all about concepts, about frameworks. We cannot live without concepts. Just getting up after the end of our sitting and finding our way out of the hall, putting on our shoes, walking around, it all involves concepts. And concepts are the domain of sanya, of this kanda of perception. So this word sanya refers to the functions of our perception and conception that allow us to identify objects like people, whole, red, wood, etc. It is thanks to Sanya that we recognize certain objects within the flow of our experience, based on our memory and based on our knowledge. And this is really useful and necessary for our ability to understand and act in the world. It is really not helpful to try to suppress this very natural function. Without Sanya, we would experience just meaningless sense impressions, just changing blurs of colors and shapes, a world where there would be no identifiable meanings. There is a comic by Gary Larson that illustrates the function of Sanya nicely. It depicts a few cows peacefully grazing on a meadow and only one of the cows is saying with an expression of consternation and even some dismay in its face, hey, wait a minute, this is grass. We've been eating grass. (laughs) (laughs) This is Sanya at work, the cow (laughs) recognizing that it is eating grass. (laughs) However, (coughs) there is a problem with Sanya that we address through our practice. Unfortunately, this process of recognizing and perceiving is fundamentally flawed for most of us, and that is what creates suffering. Being conditioned by a fundamental delusion Sanya doesn't give us a true and clear picture how things are, a trustworthy representation of things. This would be so useful if we would have that. It would spare us so many problems. But no, Sanya presents us a world that seems very solid, it seems permanent, there are attractive objects that promise some gratification. So. In a way, you could say that Sanya solidifies and freezes our fleeting, dynamic, ungraspable experience into graspable objects that are defined through the labels that we put on them. The thinking mind apprehends the world through names, labels, and it also feels some control doing this. If I can name something, if I can put it into a box, I feel somehow more safe. And it is amazing, really, how through Sanya a world appears that seems so real, so true. Sanya also creates the notion of a solid self that is identified by its appearance and name, and it does so extremely convincingly. And of course, from the notion of a permanent world and a solid self, so much suffering arises. The need to defend the self, the need to take care of it, to fulfill its wishes, etc. Wrong distorted, distorted sanya is what the mind then starts to think about which in turn leads to conceptual proliferation, papancha, entangling the mind in endless loops of considerations, hopes and fears. And this all clouds our view. And we all know this, right? So, (laughs) this distorted way of perceiving and conceiving of ourselves is deeply ingrained in our system. We are very habituated in the way we perceive. It's not that we choose to look at things the wrong way deliberately because we find this very funny or entertaining. We simply cannot help falling into ways of seeing that are creating frustration and suffering over and over. It's just habits that have evolved and at times it can be very frustrating to notice how the mind is stuck in such habits. In a way, we could say that our whole Dharma practice is about addressing this problem of distorted perception. However, freedom comes not from suppressing this natural function of Sanya, but rather by freeing it from The unwholesome distortions. If I try to get rid of all concepts, then my practice becomes somehow dumb. It's it's like not using the intelligence, not using the wisdom that would be available. So how about if we would not try to get rid of some sanya but try to bring wisdom and love into it so that it could function in a more wholesome way? The point is that this process of perception and conception is not in itself bad or unwholesome, but that it is not working properly. So we'd rather learn about it and learn how to train it so that it can function better. Ajahn Chah says, To put the Buddha's teaching in a nutshell, the point is to transform our view. The Buddha Dharma is very radical, I find, because it addresses the very process by which perception shapes our whole experience of being alive. And the Dharma teaches us ways how we can develop more wholesome perceptions. It is through our practice that, first of all, we start to become aware of our perceptions and realize that they are indeed just perceptions and then we can realize that perceptions can change, that that they are not set in stone. This is really important to understand that sanya can change. You probably all know from your own experience how changeable the perceptions can be and this is actually one of the great benefits of being on retreat and developing continuous mindfulness that we really witness the changes in our experience moment by moment, but also over longer periods of time. So one day we wake up and we feel quite okay. The next day we beat ourselves up for some insignificant reason. In one sitting there might be calm and peace, and in the next sitting just restlessness. Also, the solidity of the experience can change. There can be times where things seem very solid and dense and times where they seem much lighter and refined. Nothing, neither the objects nor myself, appears the same way all the time. Even awareness can be experienced differently at different times sometimes more narrow, contracted, sometimes very spacious, malleable. It changes. So what we can start to experience and feel is that our perceptions are not so fixed as we usually think and believe, but that they do change. They are not fixed. Even if you have the feeling that not much is going on for you, simply living through all these changes, through all the motions of the mind and being aware as best as you can, will bring the message home. Our subjective experience is pretty unstable. And a lot of learning is happening right there. So we have this, Sonia can change. Now there is another big learning embedded in the experience of seeing perceptions change over time. The understanding that we can develop from seeing perceptions change over time and seeing the processes leading up to them is that we start to understand their conditionality. We see the causes and conditions creating certain perceptions. So the way Sanya functions depends on causes and conditions, as anything. (laughs) Everything depends on causes and conditions. So this is like a learning on a meta level, you could say, to see the conditioning processes. And as you probably have experienced for yourself many times, when there is desire in the mind, then an object will seem very beautiful and attractive to us. And it will seem gross or repellent when we see it through the lenses of aversion. The same object can seem so differently depending on the, mental f- on the mental factor that is present in that moment. Another example is that our perceptions can fade during meditation as the mind is becoming more collected and equanimous. Perhaps you have had the experience of some bodily pain fading away when the mind could simply be with it without resisting it. Or the experience of a decrease of the experience of the body. I'm not saying that this has to happen, but it can at times. So that objects can feel somehow lighter or less intense at some times and more solid and more uh, dense at other times has to do that the perception is depending on the mind state. To recognize this dependency between mind state and our perception is very important because it can bring about a shift in the way we relate to all our experiences. A shift towards an understanding of the conditionality or we could also say the emptiness of all our perceptions. They are empty in the sense that they do not have an objective reality but they arise due to causes and conditions that lie within our own mind with its attitude, its mood, its conceptual frameworks, opinions, etc. Robert Bier writes about this, we construct through our way of looking what we experience. This is a part of what needs eventually to be recognized and fully comprehended. Sooner or later, we come to realize that perhaps the most fundamental and most fundamentally important fact about any experience is that it depends on the way of looking. That is to say it is empty. Other than what we can perceive through different ways of looking, there is no objective reality existing independently. And there is no way of looking that reveals some objective reality. This is profound. My experience depends on how the mind is shaping and constructing the experience and therefore there is no way to say anything that is true in an absolute sense. Everything I perceive is shaped by the mental state, by my concepts, my ideas, all my conditionings through my biography, the cultural environment. And we've heard it this morning and yesterday evening. This happens not only on an individual level, but also on the level of society, of cultures. So the way we look and perceive the world is a powerful creator of our subjective world that we then inhabit. This is a poem by Rilke. The hour is striking so close above me, so clear and sharp that all my senses ring with it. I feel it now. There is a power in me, to grasp and give shape to my world. I know that nothing has ever been real without my beholding it. All becoming has needed me. My looking ripens things, and they come toward me to meet and be met. To realize the conditionality of our perceptions might feel a little bit unsettling because it questions deep, often unquestioned assumptions about reality, about how things are. It shows us that our subjective experience is always co-created by the mind. It is not independent and self-existent. Now, as we already saw, Dharma practice aims at profoundly changing our views and helps us to get unstuck from unhelpful views that keep us trapped and to develop perceptions that are based in wisdom and compassion. And as you probably know, this is not a small thing because our perceptual process is so automatized that if we don't pay close attention, it kicks in immediately. Even a small event can be perceived and interpreted in a habitual way that creates so much unnecessary suffering. I once experienced this here being on retreat when I went upstairs to wait for my interview. And I waited and waited and nothing happened. Gradually I felt tension building up in my body and the thought crossed my mind, well, my teacher must have forgotten me, otherwise she wouldn't have me wait for such a long time. And this thought brought up feelings of abandonment, of not feeling seen and appreciated, you know, the whole thing around my childhood story. So at some point I did notice (laughs) that I was the only one from my interview group, that there was no one else waiting there. And a suspicion came to my mind, was it actually my interview day? So I went to check and indeed it was the wrong day. I had simply misread the interview list and then perceived the whole situation in a way that was very much conditioned by my old patterns. So through our practice we can change the way we are looking and change the way the mind processes sense impressions. And we are able to change perceptions because they are conditioned, because they are not fixed. Even if it might seem at times that this feeling of unworthiness is built into my system, gradually, gradually it can and it does change through Dharma practice. Hearing the Dharma, contemplating it, applying it to our own mind, over time imbues this whole process with more kindness and wisdom and gradually changes the way we perceive ourselves and the world and over time our habits of perception slowly get weaker and we learn to develop perceptions that lead to less craving less clinging and ultimately less suffering that is what the buddha taught that we can change our perception and thereby release the mind from craving and clinging. Just this week I had a conversation with Andrea and she pointed out to me that in the Pali Canon, the expression of the three characteristics, you know, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and uncontrollability, uh, the Tilakana, this expression or this word doesn't appear in the Pali canon at all. However, in the suttas the words anicca, dukkha and anatta are mentioned, usually compounded with the word perception, sanya. So the texts speak of the perception of impermanence, the perception of unsatisfactoriness, the perception of uncontrollability. So what does that mean for us, for our practice? We could say that the Buddha pointed out the importance of the way we perceive things because these perceptions condition the whole process that follows these perceptions. If the mind perceives objects simply as impermanent, unsatisfactory and uncontrollable, then it will not invest much time or energy in getting them and holding on to them. It can just let them be. So a very interesting question that we can explore is then, how am I framing or perceiving my experience? Does my way of perceiving lead to more craving and suffering or does it reduce the suffering? Is this way of viewing things skillful or not? And this relates not only to the perception of the three characteristics, but to all perceptions that we create all day long, so we can begin to intentionally work with perception. There are ways to explore how perception works and work with it in a way so that it supports the cultivation of wisdom and compassion. At times we can really intentionally bring in another, a more wholesome way of looking. As we saw, the Buddha taught Anicca, Dukkha and Anatta as perceptions that we can intentionally cultivate. Those three perceptions are central to our practice and so often it helps to remember them when we notice that the mind is somehow tense or entangled, struggling It can be as simple as, this too will pass, or things just happen in a lawful way, it's not me controlling them. It's a bit like putting on certain glasses and feeling the effect those glasses have on our experience. And seeing the world through the lenses of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not-self definitely helps to reduce our suffering. There are also other ways of playing with perception and to steer our perception in the direction of more wholesomeness, of more wisdom, kindness and compassion. Actually, there is so much space for creativity here, so many different ways of doing this. For instance, we can experiment with seeing something ordinary as sacred, like this woman who who saw the dog's tooth as sacred, immensely sacred even. We can choose to perceive the world or certain objects as sacred. And of course, at the same time, knowing that we are doing it. I love the story that Rebecca shared yesterday about Dipama blessing everything that crossed her way, even airplanes. How about moving through our day and silently blessing other yogis, blessing the doors, the tables, the trees in the woods? And you know, sometimes when the mind is inclined so, we might feel that they are blessing us, too. So, we are also on the receiving end. For me, when the mind is filled with metta, this can profoundly change the way I perceive everything. Somehow the world seems more intimate, I'm more connected. And then trees, for instance, can become like good friends and I might greet them as I pass by a tree, say hello. Or the food food that I'm receiving and eating, I can see it as a gift that I'm receiving from earth. Or the other day, Annie mentioned the sutta where the Buddha taught that even a trivial act like throwing the dishwashing water into a pool can be transformed into an act of generosity, wishing that animals may be nourished by this act. I can consciously frame an everyday situation in a way so that it becomes a practice. In one retreat, I felt quite strong aversion and judgment towards other yogis because I felt they weren't mindful enough. They didn't turn off the lights or change the empty toilet paper rolls. And of course, I felt that I was the only one taking care of this. And then Joseph suggested that I could see those acts as acts of kindness and generosity. And I did so. I started to change the paper rolls with the thought in my mind that I was doing this for all the yogis on retreat here and for all beings. And it was amazing, it was truly amazing to see how this affected my experience. Actually, I began to consciously go into those toilets (laughs) where the (laughs) toilet paper roll was empty so that I could change it. There was a joy in this. And the feeling that somehow I was contributing to this community, even if it was really in a small way. And sometimes I would be the one who would later come back to the same toilet (laughs) and find that there was a fresh paper roll and feel gratitude and appreciation. Actually, in the Zen tradition, This is a very common practice, to bring in a Dharma perspective to mundane everyday activities. For instance, in the Zen nunnery where I stayed for uh, three months, we would burn incense before cleaning the toilets and recite a short verse saying something like, through our cleaning of this toilet, may not only this toilet be cleaned, but may the minds of all beings everywhere be purified. It has something very beautiful and powerful, I find, to place such an activity like cleaning the toilet or chopping vegetables in the context of a bigger picture. It gives it more significance. Of course, we can also play with our self-views. We can entertain ideas such as seeing myself as a bodhisattva. How does that feel like to see my life and practice as a service to the world? There are endless possibilities of trying different perceptions. It's like trying on different clothes and just feeling them. So we can discover our freedom to deliberately engage in certain ways of looking that we find are helpful. We can bring a conscious intention to how we approach and frame our everyday experience, knowing at the same time that these perceptions are all just empty perceptions. Practicing with the way of looking is very much emphasized in the Tibetan Tantric tradition. So one of my teachers very often reminds us to remember a pure view, meaning that we should see everything as a Buddha field, that we should hear all sounds as sacred mantras. And at the same time, knowing that these perceptions are all empty. The idea is that by doing this, we can align our view with the view that an enlightened being would have, seeing the world as incredibly pure and sacred and empty. (coughs) Ultimately, beauty, sacredness, loveliness, all these qualities are not in the objects, but in the mind beholding them. It is the mind and the way the mind relates to the objects that creates the world that we live in. Like Ralph uh, Waldo Emerson once said, to the poet, to the philosopher, to the saint, all things are friendly and sacred, all events profitable, all days holy, all we- men and women divine. So by playing with perception, we might discover a more imaginative, creative way of looking that brings in a sense of beauty or of sacredness. Now, I know this all sounds very romantic and maybe a little bit aloof. And yet, practicing with our perception has, in fact, also implications not only on our personal level, but also on the level of society, on the collective level. The way we perceive influences everything, our whole life and how we act in the world. People like Joanna Macy, she's a Buddhist philosopher and activist, and other people too, have pointed out that the way we or most people living in modern Western societies, see and perceive nature, for instance, has direct implications on how we treat it or mistreat it, individually and collectively. The Western view of nature and this whole planet has been shaped through a long history of Judeo-Christian religion, through the development of scientific materialism and other influences, And in this view, nature is seen in a particular way, in a rather mechanistic way, that sees nature as somehow separated from us. And this distorted view of nature goes hand in hand with a dismissive view of the feminine and of the body. It's related. And obviously, such a view has strong... Effects on how we exploit and pollute and degrade the environment today in a very careless way. So, Joanna Macy, for instance, suggests viewing the world as our lover or as our which is very different from seeing the world as a battlefield, for instance, or as a trap. If we can see also through our practice, of course, that we are not a separate self, but completely interdependent with life, then we will live in a way that is in harmony with and minimizes the harming and exploitation of nature and of all the creatures. There would be so much more to explore here that I cannot go into now because of lack of time, but in any case, I have the sense that we really need to reflect and transform our perceptions and views and cultivate such views that are imbued with kindness, with compassion, with wisdom. Now to come back to our practice right here, right now, we've seen that through bringing a certain way of looking to this moment, we can bring in wholesome qualities into our experience. To some this may sound beautiful and inspiring and I'm aware that others may find this very difficult to relate to and that there may be some objections or reservations. So one objection that might arise in the mind is that our practice is about just being with what is and receiving it without trying to change it. And in a way this is true. Our general intention is to settle back and simply receive what is. Yet even as we are practicing in this way, settling back, just being, there is going to be some subtle doing. As we explore more closely we can see that the strict dichotomy between doing and being in itself is a concept and that in every experience there is some kind of fabrication involved which is a form of doing. Basically it's not me doing something anyway but it's just processes unfolding and creating experience moment by moment. So in a way there is some doing and fabricating going on anyway we're just not aware of it so we don't need to worry about that too much so the phrase of simply being is in itself just a very skillful way of framing our practice another difficulty could be that we somehow think oh but those perceptions that I deliberately create are not true because somehow they are not compatible with another view. If this arises, just check. Is there maybe an assumption underlying that there is something like one definite truth of things? Now, instead of believing that there is only one truth, we might discover that there is a whole range of possible ways of seeing. Actually, I I feel there is like a relationship between the mind state and the flexibility of holding different views. When the mind is entangled and stuck in some difficult mind state, then usually it tends to believe that this is the only way of perceiving. Do you know that when we have fear or sadness or anger, this is how it is. It has uh, this absolute quality to it. And the happier and the more peaceful the mind is, there is more spaciousness around perceptions. There is more fluidity So it really isn't necessary and not very helpful to lock down on only one truth alone. If we understand the conditioned nature of any perception, then it becomes clear that there are always many possible ways of perceiving. So why not open to a multiplicity of perception? Actually, if we try to hold on to just one perspective, we are directly heading in the direction of dogmatism and fundamentalism, this idea that there is only one truth. If we understand that there are many different ways of looking available, then we can move between them freely. For instance, I can perfectly describe water by the chemical formula, how do you say it in English, h two. Yeah. yeah, H2O, and this will suit my purposes if I'm doing some scientific research. But at the same time, I can just as well describe water as one of the four classical elements or as the primordial substance of life. Why not? The wonderful thing is that different ways of looking can coexist and that many of them can be useful and helpful at times the most important question is which way of looking is most helpful and appropriate right now so knowing and understanding that there are always other ways of seeing we can gently explore ways of how we could reframe our experience when I feel suffering and pain, one way that I'm using, and it's just one out of many possible ways, is to see the experience of suffering as a chance to heal a, a, a wound, as a chance of somehow redeeming something. So when there is grief, I might just sit and frame this sitting here as an act of healing and soothing. It's like when my father was dying and I was just sitting there next to his bed, just being there and having a sense that this sitting there was deeply important. And you might bring this thought in at times also here when the mind is striving for some future result. This view that meeting each moment with kindness and awareness in itself is an act of redemption. That being aware of this moment right now is so profound and important in itself, not because we are hoping to get something out of it for the future. Can we be so flexible to use different ways of looking skillfully without claiming that any of them must be the only true one forever? A very playful and free stance is possible if we understand that in the end all ways of looking are empty and not ultimately true. This understanding is crucial. The more we truly understand the conditionality and emptiness of all views and all ways of perceiving, the mind is released from the clinging to certain views and ways of looking, as it says in the Metta chant, by not holding two fixed views. True freedom is not to be found in any specific perception at all, not in any specific way of looking, but in the ability to see all perceptions as dependently arisen and therefore empty. And seeing this, understanding this, the mind can let go of clinging. So this is from Zhongzar Sarkien Really, please, think, from now on think, that dharma practice is an art to change perception. And once you change the perception really, then you are released from all this paranoia, and that's enlightenment. So let's sit in silence.